0: Galatians chapter 3, verse 19 through 22. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: So last week I shared how we were going to discuss why the law. It seemed as though Paul was making quite a point to say that the law had seemingly a negative effect. And if that's true, then why did God even give the law to begin with? You know, especially in light of words such as Psalm 19, where David says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. That sounds like David actually appreciates the law, thinks it's good. In fact, he says it's to be desired more than gold, and it's sweeter than honey. So what do you think? What's Paul saying? Is he saying the law is bad? or does he agree with David in saying, "The law makes you so happy? you delight in the Lord because of the law? I do think Paul makes it clear to us here that we cannot understand the gospel unless we understand the law and we won't actually appreciate the gospel without loving the law without seeing its right use and so I hope as we explore this weekend next that we will rightly understand Paul's use of the law and today we'll talk about two areas in which he uses the law and next week the third way first is that the law reveals our sin in verses 19 through 20 And then secondly, the law drives us to Christ in verses 21 through 22. And then next week, we'll cover the law protecting us in verses 23 to 29. So focus on these first two parts this week. We know first that the law, according to verses 19 through 20, reveals our sin. Let's again look at chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. Why then the law? Question mark. It was added because of our transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Let's go back and reflect on verses 15 and 18 because we saw that the law came after the promise that God had given to Abraham. Paul describes this verse similarly in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. And it's often thought that Romans is sort of this expansion of Galatians. It, it's like a commentary on Galatians, you might say. And so this is what Romans five twenty says about this passage that we see in Galatians. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. That's a very, very stark phrase and it really begs many questions. But to understand it, you have to understand a few things about this this verse. First is that this verb where it says the law came in, it actually literally means came in by the side. So alongside or by the side. And one commentator thinks of it as a road. It's it's sort of like an off-ramp road, sort of a frontage road that goes alongside off of it. And I'd like to take that in mind and to imagine it this way, to sort of take that metaphor and think of it as God has this one highway, this one freeway, and it's the road by which we eventually meet him. We spend time with him. We're in his eternal presence forever and ever. And this road is, is meant to draw people to himself. But as we're driving along this road, there's a diversion and this diversion is called sin. And this road is, is it's so fascinating and enticing to want to divert off the main road. We should stay on the main road. It's the safe road, but that side road looks so enticing. I remember a number of years ago, and I think I had re- recalled this and used this illustration before, but I use it again. Uh, CNET te- uh, technological journalist James Kim. He was traveling along with his family from Oregon back to the Bay Area during the winter months. And if you've ever driven along uh, that road, it's I think five Interstate 5 is the main road that goes there. But he had decided to take a detour and go along the Oregon coast which at that time, Oregon is sort of finicky. It It can be totally fine, or it could be snowing with a blizzard. And he detoured off and went beyond this one area that had this road that had been closed because it was close to the ocean. But by doing so, his car got stuck. And if you know the story is he had a, his car got stuck is that it wasn't that much heat at all and his family was left behind and so he decided to go off on his own to try to find help but in doing so became hypothermic and eventually ended up dying you know i take that illustration because i th- i think that's such a, a an appropriate illustration to describe this idea of staying to the main road that paul is saying here in romans 520 the law came in to increase the trespass it we're meant to stay on the road, but our sin diverts us off. And it's to real detriment and possibly even lethal danger, mortal danger to veer off that road. And so the law becomes this turnback, this means by which we can go back to the main road. It's not the destination itself, but it points us back to the right destination. It shows us that we're off track. One more road illustration. Uh, think about if for those of you who've, you know, I think all of us do you use your GPS or Google maps or Apple maps or whatever, and you've punched in your destination, you're driving along, but you decide, you know, I think I'm gonna go get, get a cup of coffee. And so you divert off to get coffee. What does your GPS do? It says, make a U-turn, make a U-turn, make a U-turn. And it's annoying, right? And, you know, you you just press stop. Okay, I'm turning it off because I don't want to hear that make a U-turn. Well, the law is that GPS saying, make a U-turn, make a U-turn, go back, go back, go back. We don't like the law doing that because that's our conscience with the law telling us we've diverted off the main road. We need to go back. But our flesh says, no, no, I'm not going back. And so we just decide, how can I turn this off? How can I deaden it? How can I make it not feel so bad in my heart? So, does the law actually, as Romans 5 20, lead us to more sin? Which is again an interpretation of Galatians 3 19. And if so, what does that mean? I like the way Martin Luther describes it. He describes the law as the chain on a wild beast. So the chain itself, because the wild beast is is sort of hooked on to the chain, that beast gets more angry, more ferocious uh, because it fights against the chain. But that chain also protects passers-by who, if not For that chain would rip apart that beast would rip apart any passerby so to the law it not only reveals sin but in that sense it can increase sin and restrain sin to an extent it restrains it by saying do not murder and so therefore in a society people understand there's this law we shouldn't go around murdering people but the law itself doesn't take away the murderers heart in Matthew chapters five and six, Jesus makes it so clear that despite the law being either there present or not, the heart says I'm angry and Jesus equates murder to anger because the heart is the same, whether you murder someone or not. And so when, for example, an angry dictator, can decide to press a button and though they might not physically kill somebody, if that button or orders, you know, proverbially orders the destruction of a nuclear bomb to go and hit some uh, country, they're killing many people even though they're not physically going around killing people because their heart is murderous, their angry heart, their self-centered heart. The law might be able to restrain sin But it only does so temporarily it really can't do it fully we also know that the law can increase sin not that the law in and of itself creates sin but that it shows the reality of sin it shows also our need for god's salvation and the depravity of our hearts is revealed most once the law is revealed Let me give one more illustration that I've used once before. R.C. Sproul gave this illustration of where, you know, the many many of you might recall this, where uh, there's a couple of kids, and I believe it was himself. I think he used it of himself and his friend, where the principal had made an announcement over the speaker system saying. If you bring firecrackers to the school, you will be suspended. And up until that point, he had never imagined bringing firecrackers to the school until he heard that you shouldn't bring firecrackers to the school. And he and his friend brought firecrackers to the school and were suspended. And I think if you really work through your heart, you can see how so often just by simply saying, do not do something automatically brings into the heart the temptation to want to do something. It's because there is this internal beast called sin and depravity that once the law is revealed and put into place, there's a desire to overcome that law and actually to break that law. And that's why sometimes, I know for many parents, we always walk this... This fine line of not wanting to say too much to our children, because if you do, you might actually unlock something that they might never have thought about. Maybe there's conversations, significant conversations that you think, I need to have these conversations with my kids in order to prevent them from certain behaviors in their life. Certain even bad behaviors. But just by simply saying, you should not do these things, and I, I have a number of them in my head, but I don't want to, I don't even want to do that. You know, because once you start laying out all these things, there's this tendency to think, well, I never thought about that, but now that you mention it, it starts coming into their mind. There's a Satan, there's sin. The law increases trespass, it creates the desire to want to break the law because depravity is already there. Do you understand what I'm saying? In that sense, you can see how, as Paul says in Romans 5, that now the law came in to increase the trespass. As John Calvin puts it, the law was given in order to make transgressions obvious, and in this way to compel men to acknowledge their guilt. The more we grow as a believer of Christ, the more you will see how much your heart desires to break the law, how often it happens. I was just having a conversation with a couple of guys and we were talking about how as we are in the midst of talking about grace so often, it's so quick the turn to go back to the law. I can say, you know, I need to point my family to Jesus. I need to show them how wondrous Christ's grace is to us, and then I could say, you better do this and that in order to understand this grace. You know, it's, it happens without us even recognizing it, because our instinct is always to think the law is what changes the heart, but it doesn't. It has a very different role. You know, I've, I've mentioned sonship a few times, as we're, even as we're going through it as a, a small group, And I do that because actually Sonship, what uh, Jack Miller created as a discipleship program is essentially based off of Galatians. That's why it ties in so well together. uh, What it's a practical outworking, you might say, of some of the things that we're learning in Galatians here. And in this book, they have a section that's called, as I grow, there are more opportunities for sin. I mean, think about that. That's a contradiction, right? As you grow in Christ, there are more opportunities to sin you would think that should be the opposite as you grow there should be less opportunities but actually if you understand galatians you can see and you understand this passage that the law actually increases transgression you can see how the more you grow in the gospel the more you can use the gospel as law the more i think okay i'm becoming more gospel centered then i look around and say oh that person's not gospel centered therefore they're not growing you know automatically my instinct is to compare to judge to criticize with the gospel with grace that's how that's how stubborn my heart is well i want to give you a few areas where they they see how it plays out and i think um it just gives a good picture of this it says My capacity for self-righteousness grows. Different gospel. They are to be accursed. So there's this high lofty view of angels. Why? Because they're mythical. At least they, they just seem to accentuate the power of God. So if angels gave the law, then surely the law had a significant place in the gospel. And perhaps the Judaizers are making that same point, but Paul makes exactly the opposite point in verse 20. His point is this, the angel's presence reveals the idea of mediation, mediation. Now, what, is he, what do I mean by that? Remember on Mount Sinai, when Moses was receiving the law, no one could step foot on that mountain because that mountain was filled with God's holiness, his glory. And the law showed just how far they were from God. When God was delivering the law to Moses, the fact that they couldn't even put their finger on the mountain showed that their heart of sin was so far away from God's perfect righteousness and holiness. And the law exemplified that. But Paul's point is this, why are you so mesmerized by angels when you have Christ? And you don't need mediation because in this instance, because of Jesus, you can go directly to him. There is no mediation. There is no holy mountain that you cannot touch. Jesus has completely taken that away. You don't need angels at all. You don't need anything to come and understand who God is. You don't even need the law, you have Christ. You have everything. You have the promise. This happens so often, don't you think? Even for us, we think we need mediation. I need a sign, Father, that you are faithful, you're good. I need to know that God, you're real, you exist. Show me a miracle. Remember when Jesus said, no sign will be given but the sign of Jonah, the resurrection power of God through Christ but we so often want some mediation, some mediator, some go-between. We want Mary to be our mediation. We want a saint, Saint Anthony, to be our mediation. We want some mediation, some sign, something in the middle that says God is who he says he is. And Paul's saying, you don't need a healing. You don't need God's favor. It is always grace when God does anything for us in any way but may we not think of it as that's that proves that god is really good to me you already have what has been proven that god is good to you that is his son on a cross bearing your sins everything else is just simply god's kindness his mercy that's it he's already proven he's good so there should never be an instance where we think if I get this, then I know God is really there or he's really good to me or he's really kind to me or he really loves me. No, he's already proven it infinitely more than anything else you ever gain in your life. Your life. In that way, I do think we can so much be like the Judaizers who think the law or something, a sign, a miracle, an angel, something has to be there that shows that God is faithful and good to me. And we do need to remember fully that we have Christ. We can come directly to him, which is why verses 21 through 22, the second use of the law, it drives us to Christ. Look at verses 21 through 22. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe the law. Scripture, in this verse, that is the law, what verse 22 is referring to, reveals and even increases sin. It increases the full awareness of sin, and it increases the imprisonment of everything under it. There's no escaping sin because the law reveals this to us. And without the law, we could never see how much we truly sin. And we will be overcome by it because the law is so impressed upon our hearts, and that our hearts are so inclined to break the law that we have no choice. Either we suppress the law on our conscience and actively rebel against God, or We turn to the one who can free us from this guilt that the law reveals. But the one thing we want to do is we never want to admit our guilt. We never want to say that. You know, imagine, and I think a lot of us have experienced this. You're driving along the road and suddenly you see flashing lights behind you. You get pulled over. The officer says, may I see license and registration. Actually, a lot of times they'll ask, the first question they'll ask is, Do you know what you did wrong? Right. And our instinct is to say, I don't know. I don't know what I did wrong. And he'll say, did you see that stop sign back there? You didn't come to a complete stop. How many of you have ever had that happen? (laughs) And in maybe in your, you say to him, I didn't know that I did that. What's the purpose of saying, I didn't know I did that. It's to say this, as long as I didn't know the law, I'm innocent. Do you see that? As long as I didn't know I'm innocent, but deep in my heart, I know I'm not innocent. There is a law I rolled through the stop. And even though I want to think that I don't know it in my heart of hearts, I know it. In other words, God has impressed the law upon our hearts. We see this again in Matthew five and six, when God says, you know, you could say you've never murdered anyone, but if you've become angry, you've already broken the law of murder because you're angry in your heart. Jesus says that. So the law is embedded in our hearts, but there is an actual written code of law. And we are so prone to think to ourselves, as long as I don't know it, I'm actually innocent. And so Paul is saying that when we even have the law, we want to suppress it. We don't want to feel guilty. We don't want to do that. And so we actively rebel against God by stuffing the law deep down in our hearts. But the law is there to show it's to increase our sin, it's to show that we actually truly are sinners. And when we don't see that, then we're quick to judge people. We lack grace and kindness when other people sin. When they sin against us, we're unwilling to forgive. The law is supposed to pour out in us this increase of sin to reveal it to us and to say, "I'm helpless. I can't. I can't do this. There is no way. I'm utterly broken. I'm utterly sinful." That's why Luther describes it like this. Therefore, the principal purpose of the law. theology is to make men not better but worse that is it shows them their sin so that by the recognition of sin they may be humbled frightened and worn down and so may long for grace and for the blessed offering praise God for the law because it makes us humbled frightened and worn down if you are humbled frightened and worn down because of your sin that is a grace. I know you don't think that. (laughs) I know it's hard to believe. Wait, you're telling me that if I feel guilty and really just overcome by my sin, that that's a good thing? The answer is yes. Because as we see in Romans 1, go and read Romans 1 through 3, and you'll see Paul's whole argument there is to say that human beings sear their conscience. They cauterize their conscience. They burn it so that they don't feel anything anymore. And when you don't feel anything, you've burned away your conscience, then you can do whatever you want against God and say, God, you're non-existent. I have have no basis for morality or ethics. I'm going to do whatever feels good for me and I don't care about anyone else. That's a seared conscience. But when the law is activated and we are, constantly rubbing up against it, it increases your sin and it piles on you and it it's meant to, as Luther says, wear you down, frighten you, actually cause you to say, I can't believe this person can do such things. I can't believe my mind can think that way. I can't believe I can hurt that person that deeply. That's what the law is supposed to do. Praise God for the law. Because it's supposed to then make you long for grace and the blessed offspring. Therefore, consider this. This is what a sanctified, growing Christian is. Someone who sees sin more in their life, not less. Someone who knows they're sinning more, not less. See, here's the challenge is that when we are being sanctified and if we have a perfectionistic view of a Christian, it's, as I grow in Christ I'm sinning less by sinning less guess what that means I don't need Jesus anymore I don't need the gospel I don't need the cross cuz I'm sinning less if you're actually morally sinning less why do you need Jesus in your life and if you get to a point where you actually can say I don't sin anymore then you don't need Christ anymore is that what's, what the Holy Spirit does in sanctification no what the Holy Spirit does is he reveals your sin and your need for Christ more and more each day. And it drives you to Christ. It makes you appreciate, love, delight, exalt, praise Christ all the more. It makes you consider words like justification, imputation, all these big theological words, but they're actually meant to display simple truths. He substituted himself for me. He took my place. He bore my sins on a tree. He became a curse for me. All of these things are reminders of why I should be so thankful. Every day should be a day of joy. No matter how dark it is, it's always bright. No matter how broken my body is, I have something to look forward to. Whether the world is wasting away and and just looking bleaker and bleaker with all the news, one thing I know, Christ has won. He has won the day. So the, the Christian does not wish away all misery and say, I, I'm, I, can't, I can't wait for the day where there's no more pain and no more sorrows. It's, I am so thankful for what Jesus has done. And that then flows out a desire for that end time, that end day. Let me just give you an example. The story of the ten lepers in Luke 17 they cry out to Jesus in desperation together, all 10 of them. Why? Because there's physical misery. Their life was miserable, as well as spiritual misery, psychological misery. They were outcasts of society. Their world was terrible. It was, and everyone looked at them with eyes of disgust. So after they're healed, and if you know the story, none of them return, except for one. And look at how he returns in Luke 17, 15 through 16. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. His physical condition, just like all of them, represented, in actuality, their spiritual condition. All these lepers had the same problem, and it wasn't leprosy, actually. It was their hearts, just like all of us. We have leprous hearts. And they were all, he immediately begins to sob his confession. The mother tells him that despite his tears, he still had to go and tell his sister what he had done as soon as she got home from school. So that afternoon, it was torture for this little boy. And as each passing minute seems like an hour of wondering how his sister would react to his crime. When his sister finally comes home, the boy runs to the door. The anxiety had built throughout the whole day and with this, uh, the the dam of his guilt burst into this flood of tears and confession. And he says, Sally, I'm so sorry. I ate your teddy bear. And he, he, of course, he's sobbing, feels guilty. But his sister was the kind of big sister who was always looking for a chance to love her little brother. And so she took him in her arms, kissed him, and said, It's okay, Johnny. I will always love you anyway and always. As he was chomping down on the teddy bear, stuffing his face, enjoying every last morsel, when he was caught chocolate-handed, and he was mortified, I mean, it revealed one thing. He knew the law, right? He knew that was wrong, even though he wasn't even told it. He knew he was sinning and he didn't care. Because in the moment, the chocolate tastes much better than the punishment or even the law that's impressing on his heart that's saying, that's his sisters, that's his sisters, your sisters, don't do that. But then after the chocolate is gone, what comes? Despair. Hopelessness. Isn't that what sin is like? We all, in the moment, it always feels so right, so good, so pleasurable. But afterward, despair, hopelessness. And his mother would not let him off. The law says you have to tell your sister. And that's a crushing burden. Because now you know the law, it's wrong. But You still confess. You still trust. And then you hear these incredible words, words that you would never expected. I will love you anyway and always. Do you see how the law brings you to the end of yourself? But the gospel brings you to the beginning of grace. And it shows you love. So the end goal of the law is not that you think the law you add on more laws to save you and to make you feel good about yourself the end goal of the law is to bring you to a place of grace to show you that you can't do this and you need someone who bore your weight your sin your rebellion all everything that you've done against god that god has taken that through his son And he's remind you, I will love you always and anyways because of what my son has done for you. And with that then flows out worship and love. Faith expressing itself through love is when you know that to be true that's when compassion comes. Kindness, mercy, faithfulness. My friends, we need the law. Actually many of us don't Have the law enough in us but we need to rightly use the law as first Timothy 1 8 says we know that the law is good if one uses it properly and so the law is good it has its purpose we need to use it rightly it drives us to Christ because we need the law because we're so self-righteous and so proud we actually think we're deserving of God's love And we are self-centered enough and blind to our own sin enough that the law shows us, make a U-turn, make a U-turn, go back, go back. Trust Christ. Go back to the cross. Believe that he saves, that you are guilty, but Christ bore that guilt for you. You are deserving of full judgment and condemnation, but Christ bore that condemnation and judgment for you. And know that God is gracious. He will love you always and anyway, forever and ever. And to hear those words is why we love the law, why we say thank God for the law. Let's pray together. Oh Father, we do praise you for that law. Without it, we would believe terribly that we are righteous on our own merit and effort. But we so desperately need you, oh Lord, to remember your kindness to us, your mercy, Reveal to us, O Lord, how much we need Jesus. Help us to see, O Lord, the more we are sanctified, the more we are sinful. But the more we are sinful, the more we see our need for Christ and we run to that cross. And we know at that cross, with arms open wide, Jesus, you open your heart to us and you tell us once again that you love us always and anyway. And if we ever have any doubt of that, all we need to do is look at the the nail-pierced hands and feet and remember that you bore our sins on a tree. You became a curse for us. And we are free to then experience your great kindness and mercy. And we go forth then with love, with compassion, with mercy, with forgiveness, with compassion for the lost and the poor, and we are once again driven to that cross over and over. We praise you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray.